Good morning. Uh, today we are continuing in a series that we've been in, Judges Deep Cuts. And uh, we, are, we are most of the way through the book of Judges. There's this week and then next week. And as you've been going through this, you know, Chris outlined on the first week uh, that there are some themes, some common refrains that sort of emerge throughout this whole book. For instance, uh, the phrase, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see that throughout the entire book. Or the people cried out to God to save them. It's this cycle that we see kind of emerge throughout this whole book. In fact, Chris said week one that the whole book seems to be sort of a, like a downward spiral uh, cycle of God's people getting drawn into the pagan culture around them and then facing the consequences of that. Each story, for instance, starts off with, and a new judge arose to save them because they needed saving. It's, it's a major theme of the book. But as I was reading through the end of Joshua and, and through the book of Judges, there was another theme that emerged for me that I hadn't seen previously. At the, at the end of the book of Joshua, it says that God gave the land of Israel rest. And at the end of many of the stories of at least the good judges, it ends with, and the land had rest for blank years. For instance, Othniel, the first judge, and a good judge, at the end of the story it says, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people, once again, did what was right in their own eyes, and they got in trouble, and so God has to raise up Ehud, the second judge, to save them, and he does, and his story ends with, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Until, once again, the people of God did what was right in their own eyes, and they got in trouble, and they faced the consequences, and they cried out to God, and God raises up new judges. Deborah's story ends with, and the land had rest. Gideon's story ends with, and the land had rest. There's this predictable cycle. And I think in that cycle, there's a lesson for us as well. There's a place to write this down. God's way leads to rest. Joshua had told them as they were entering this new promised land, he said, choose this day whom you will serve, Yahweh or the gods of this culture, the gods of this region. And then the whole rest of the book of Judges is sort of the cycle of, of them choosing this day whom they will serve. And, and you see the results of those choices in this cycle. The results of following God's way is that the land and the people and the animals, all of them experience rest. I think rest is a sign of God's provision and of our faithfulness to following God, following God's way. Rest is a high value for God. The creation narrative says that on the seventh day, God rested. Why? Because he was just so run down from all the creating. No, because he values rest. He wants to model rest and he wants his people, his followers to experience rest. The fourth commandment is to do what? It's to rest, to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, come to me all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. I think a question we have to ask ourselves then is are our lives, are our stories, are our cycles marked by rest? If our lives and our lifestyles aren't marked by rest, by Sabbath, then perhaps I think we need to ask the question, like, are, are there other gods in our life? Because God's way leads to rest. Now, let me be clear. I, I know that there are seasons of life that are crazy busy and really, really hard. So if, like, if, you're, stay, you know, if you're at home with a two-year-old who keeps you exhausted all the time, I'm not saying your life isn't marked by rest and therefore you're a bad Christian and God is angry. Right? That's just guilt on top of exhaustion and it's not helpful. 
But what I am saying is this. If God's desire is rest and his promise is rest, then we, we have an opportunity to kind of hold up our own lives, our own cycles against that standard and say, am I experiencing God? And if not, why not? Am I choosing God's way or culture's way? So let's go back. Let's go back to the text. Last week, we looked at chapter nine. It was the story of Abimelech. And there's some significant shifts in the narrative, in the, the arc of the story with Abimelech. For instance, God doesn't raise up Abimelech. Abimelech raises up Abimelech. And he's commissioned by the people and he's horrible. And the story is full of conspiracy and treachery and murder. And the story ends with not, and the land had rest. The story ends with slaughter and humiliation and with a curse, right? And that sort of brings us then to today's passage. We're introduced uh, very quickly in the first couple of verses to a couple of judges, uh, Tola and Jair. And they, they have a total of five verses. They have a combined 45 years of judging Israel, but for some reason they get like five verses. I, I don't know how that's decided, but that's what it is. Then we pick up in verse six. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the images of Baal and Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. They abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. It's interesting, it's interesting to me at least, that, that the first two gods that are listed, Baal and Ashtoreth, are the local gods. They're named by name, and they're the local gods of the Canaanite religions. But all the other gods that are listed are listed by their region, Aram, Sidon, Moab. Not only are the Israelites worshiping the local pagan gods, they're actually importing gods from the surrounding cultures. They have fully embraced this polyistic culture that they were living in and around. Next verse, the text says, So the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. These outsiders whose gods Israel were worshiping were now allowed to come in, and, and they, they, they oppressed uh, the people of Israel for 18 years. Skipping down to verse 9, the Israelites were in great distress. Finally, they cried out to the Lord for help, saying, We've sinned against you because we've abandoned you as our God and have served the images of Baal. Notice that they leave out like all the other gods. Like, yeah, we worship Baal and, and Ashtoreth and, and a few others as, as well. <laughs> the Lord replied, Did I not rescue you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Moanites? When they oppressed you, you cried out to me for help and I rescued you. Yet you've abandoned me and served other gods. So I will not rescue you anymore. Go out and cry to these gods you have chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. God is saying, you chose those gods. You imported those gods. Go cry out to them. See how that works out for you. I think, I think there's some lessons in there for us too. I think God will let us choose other gods. God will let us walk away. He will let us build our own altars to other things. And God will then let us rely on those other gods. God will let us rely on ourselves, on our finances, on our retirement plans, on our politicians, on our leisure, on our addictions, and on our entertainment. What gods are we choosing? What gods do we cry out to when we are in despair, when we are in distress? Back to the text. Next verse. But the Israelites pleaded with the Lord and said, We have sinned. Punish us as you see fit. Only rescue us today from our enemies. 
Then the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord. And he was grieved by their misery. Don't miss that last phrase. He was grieved by their misery. I think there's a lesson for that in us, for us too. And perhaps it's a bit more encouraging. God grieves over his people's misery. I think there's comfort in that. Yes, like a good parent, God will let us make mistakes and experience the natural consequences of those poor choices. But he grieves with us and he grieves for us in our place of pain. Let's go back to the text. At that time, the armies of Ammon were gathered for war and were camped in Gilead. And the people of Israel assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of Gilead said to each other, whoever attacks the Ammonites first will become ruler over all the people of Gilead. Chapter 10 ends then with the enemy surrounding them. They're ready to attack and the leaders come up with a plan. Basically like, all right, whoever goes out and fights this guy gets to be our ruler. Who wants it? I mean, that, that's not the method by which judges have been raised up, right? I mean, that looks a lot more like how Abimelech was chosen, right? And how did that work out? Next verse, which is chapter 11. Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. He was the son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. So here we're introduced to our next judge, Jephthah. And right out of the gates, the author begins to paint this picture of sort of an imperfect, complex judge. He's a great warrior and his mother is a prostitute. Next verse. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have any inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So he's a great warrior and the son of a prostitute and an outcast from his family and his community. And he's driven out to the land of Tob and he's collected a bunch of worthless fellows to be his band of marauders raiding villages and killing people. Our next judge. <laughs> next verse. About this time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. When the Ammonites attacked, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob. The elders said, come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to them, aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? It seems like a fair question, right? Note that they, they asked him to come be their commander, which is very different than what they had promised, that they would be the ruler of all the people, right? They asked him to come and be their commander, Next verse, because we need you, the elders replied. If you lead us into battle against the Ammonites, we will make you ruler over all the people. Jephthah said to the elders, let me get this straight. If I come with you, and if the Lord gives me victory over the Ammonites, will you really make me ruler over all the people? The Lord is our witness, the elders replied. We promise to do whatever you say. This picture you get, I mean, this is classic kind of ancient Near Eastern world. They're, they're, they're bartering, they're, they're negotiating. If I do this, then you agree to do this, right? So Jephthah goes with them and he agrees to the terms and in front of the assembly of the people and in front of the Lord, they make this oath to one another. They, they ratify this contract with one another. And at first, Jephthah tries diplomacy. He, he sends these, these long messages, kind of these history lessons to the Ammonite king, basically trying to avoid having to fight, but it doesn't work. So jumping down to verse 29. At that time, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mitzah in Gilead. And from there, he led an army against the Ammonites. It's, it's interesting to me, 
even though he was sort of this flawed candidate and there was sort of a flawed candidating process, God still chooses to pour out his spirit on Jephthah. God is faithful even when his people weren't. Even when his people chose kind of culture's way, God still remained faithful. So, so Jephthah goes out and he gets this army and hopefully it's more than just a bunch of worthless fellows like his previous band of people. Next verse. And here I think is where it gets really interesting. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever, and actually the, the word in Hebrew there could actually be whatever, whoever, comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So there, there are a number of things that are problematic in that vow, if you look at it. I mean, first of all, in each step of this journey, each step of the story, Jeff is faced with this, whose way will you choose? Choose this day. Is it God's way or is it culture's way? And right out of the gates, you can see, first of all, God never asked Jephthah to make a vow. He had already poured his spirit out on Jephthah. These kind of vows were the way of the world, not God's way. Secondly, this is a, this is a reckless, reckless vow. I mean, Jephthah isn't thinking that like a lamb is going to come out to greet him when he gets home from battle. It's not going to be the family dog. Uh, they didn't have dogs and that wouldn't be a good sacrifice anyway. No, Jephthah would have known that whoever or whatever comes out of my house would almost certainly have been a human. In fact, traditionally, it was the women who would come out and greet the warriors when they returned. They would come with songs and with tambourines and dancing. He knew that that's probably what he was promising. And Jephthah would have also known that God specifically forbid his people from engaging in any form of human sacrifice. That's how the local gods did it, not the way of Yahweh. Here, Jephthah is making a promise, a pagan promise to Yahweh, trying to relate to God using pagan practices. That's not God's way. That's culture's way. Finally, I think Jephthah is doing the same thing with God that we had just seen him doing with these other elders of the, of the people. He's negotiating. Like, if I do this vow, then will you give me battle? You know, give me victory in the battle. He's trying to come at God on his own terms, using sort of the power tactics, the power negotiating tactics of the day, trying to ensure that God will do what Jephthah wanted. And that's not God's way. That's culture's way. But don't, don't we sometimes do that though? God, if you'll just do this one thing, I swear I'll go to church more. Or if you just do this one thing, I swear I'll never look at that again, or I'll, I'll never have another drink, or I'll never, whatever it is. We try to negotiate with God using sort of our tactics. We saw these same themes in, in Gideon's story, you know, negotiating. Like, if you just show me this one sign and then the second sign and then a dream? And, and with Barack, you know, I'll go if she goes, but I'm not going if she doesn't go. It, it's this sort of this negotiation. But here's the thing. God doesn't want to negotiate. When we try to bargain with God, we're trying to meet God on our terms. We're trying to get him to do what we think he should do. We presume that we know more essentially than God does. Negotiating with God is a sign of fear, not a sign of faith. That's not God's way. That's culture's way. And it ends really badly for Jephthah. Next verse. So Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, devastating about 20 towns from Aurora to, the, to an area near Minith, and as far away as Abel Karamin. In this way, Israel defeated the Ammonites. They won. That's good news, right? Keep reading. 
When Jephthah returned home to Mitzpah, his daughter came out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. Another one of the themes you see throughout all of these stories is that everybody had like 70 sons or like 100 kids, right? Everybody had so many kids. Fertility was a big deal and having children ensured your survival. It ensured the survival of your legacy would continue. Your wealth would continue. Your land, your importance would continue. Your story would continue. But Jephthah only had one child and it wasn't even a boy. And now he jeopardized that one child with this foolish foolish vow. Next verse. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out. You completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me. For I've made a vow to the Lord and I cannot take it back. Sadly, in, in reality, actually, the law had all kinds of provisions that if you made a vow that would cause you to do something that was an abomination, you could, you could rewrite that vow. You could change that vow. But Jephthah chooses not to employ that. And so the story ends with, her father kept the vow he had made and she died a virgin. Jephthah had a choice, God's way or culture's way. And the story of Jephthah ends with him alone with no legacy, no story, no future. And a few verses later, chapter 12 says, Jephthah judged Israel for six years and when he died, he was buried in one of the towns of Gilead. Unlike the previous judges, there is no, and the land had rest. Jephthah, it says, judged for a measly six years. And he was buried in one of the towns of Gilead. He was buried in some town, but it's not even worth mentioning. Jephthah had a choice. God's way that leads to life, to rest, to joy, to peace, or culture's way. And we have that same choice today. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Which way will you choose? I would invite you all, all of us, including myself, to do a really simple exercise this week. It's kind of a culmination of where we've been on this journey so far through the book of Judges. Ask yourself the following questions. What are the cycles in your life? We all have them the ups and downs, the things that, that draw us closer to God and the things that pull us away. What are those cycles? And are you moving further and further toward God as Chris drew in, that first, drew in that first, or further and further away from God like the book of Judges sees? Second question, is your life marked by rest? And if not, why not? I'll tell you that mine isn't. <laughs> I mean, that's not... That's not something I'm proud of. In fact, it's one of my biggest growth opportunities areas in my life. But it's one of those things that, have, that leaves me asking the question, like if I'm working all the time, then what am, I, what am I relying on? Where am I not trusting God? In fact, where am I making perhaps an idol out of work or identity based on my work or fear of not being able to provide? You know, what is that? Why am I not able to embrace rest? Third question, who do you cry out to? When you feel stressed or frustrated or worse, when you feel despair, where do you go first? To escape? You know, to Netflix, to food, uh, to alcohol, to combination of all of the above? Where do you go first? Where do you cry out to? And at some point, I think we have to ask the question, are we crying out to the gods that we have chosen?
that bring us comfort, that bring us escape, that bring us release. Have those things become idols in our lives. And then finally, what's one step you can take in breaking the cycle and in bending that curve from, from moving further and further away from God to moving further and further, if imperfectly, toward God? Remember week one, Chris said this, reach out with both hands. Reach out to God for deliverance and for help, but then also reach out to the people around you for help. Jeff's this story seems to end, and end somewhat tragically. His one heir, his one child is dead by his hand. His legacy is gone, his story is gone, and all is a failure. But there's more to this story. I would invite you this week to read through Hebrews chapter 11. It's sometimes called the Hall of Faith. And then you're going to see all these names that you would predict to see as sort of the champions of the faith. You know, from, from Abel to Enoch to Noah to Joseph and Jacob and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and all these superstars of the faith. And then you get about two-thirds of the way through that chapter. And you know whose name shows up? Jephthah. And I don't think it's because of anything Jephthah did or didn't do. I, I think that's a gift to us. I think that's a gift to us where God says, I can even redeem the story of this man. I can even use him in his imperfect faith, his imperfect promise, his imperfect process. I can use him to accomplish my good in this world. And at least for me, that's very good news. If God can use Jephthah to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, then I know he can use me. And I know he can use you. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, for this book, this book that is, is troubling, uh, this book that just seems to highlight sometimes the very worst of who we are as your followers. God, I pray that uh, in, the, in this words that we've spoken today uh, and in this series, God, that you would be speaking to us, giving us a picture of that hope, a picture of that redemption, a picture of what it means to break these cycles that are oftentimes even generational in order that we might be growing more and more into your people, moving and pushing and encouraging one another to become more and more like you and not allowing culture and our own apathy to drive us farther and farther away from you. Lead us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.